Well, take your Bible, look over to James chapter 3. We come here to the controlling of the tongue. It's a very, very important scripture, as you know, one that James spends a considerable amount of time on. As you turn to James chapter 3, Parker read from it this morning. I remind you, if you just want to footnote this verse, that Proverbs 18.21 incredibly says, so says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. I mean, whatever you want to say, and we're going to exposit from it this week, the weeks to come, death and life, Proverbs 18.21, are in the power of the tongue. I mean, the tongue and our words can bring great help, great blessing, but also great pain. I mean, one statistician said that the average person spends about 13 years of his life or her life talking, okay? Almost one-fifth of your life talking. Somebody has estimated that on the average or on a normal day, between 18 to 25,000 words are likely to be used, In other words, every day you would be writing a 54-page book with the words that you speak. In fact, if you wanted to add it together, in the course of a single year, one's words would fill 66 books, each containing 800 pages. I mean, imagine coming into my library and you see a nicely bound 66 volume. And you ask me, what are those? I said, well, those are my works. What do you mean your works? Well, those are just all the words that I spoke last year. 66 books. Maybe I might have a little more as a teacher. I don't know. I always know that there was, a, there was a little funny little quip that I think it was Michael Collins, the, the astronaut. He said that the average man speaks 25,000 words a day. The average woman, he said, speaks about 30,000 words every day. He said the problem is, is that when I get home, I've spoken my 25,000 and my wife hasn't started her 30. Now, I, I don't know if that's true, but that's, that's what he said. I mean, one man... One man, Nick, you like that one, I'm glad. (laughs) One man described the tongue as the uncontrollable little red rebel that lives in a red cave guarded by two rows of white soldiers called teeth. Well said. Chuck Swindoll, the popular preacher, called the tongue, quote, that mere two-ounce slab of mucous membrane. I mean, it can get you in a world of trouble, can it? I mean, I I think you would agree that mankind has accomplished some incredible feats. I mean, we have put men into rocket ships and women into rocket ships, shot them off into space. We have had the moon under our feet. We have left footprints on the ocean floor. We've sent people into submarines without coming to surface for months. We've sent satellites up into the sky, bouncing our voices off these to countries around the globe. However, incredible as our accomplishments are, 
James says that no one is able to tame the tongue. I mean, the power of speech is one of the greatest powers that God has given us. I mean, think about it. We can, with our words, praise God. We can pray tonight at 5.30. We can preach. We can lead the lost to Christ. But with that same tongue, we can tell lies that could ruin a person's reputation and break a person's heart. Paul Tripp captures the war of words. In fact, he wrote that book, War of Words, that are sadly part of everyday life for some. And what follows is the words in counseling appointments that he has heard that I have heard as well. These are all quotes. Quote, I never thought when we were going together that he would talk to me the way he does. End of quote. Another one was, I can't believe what I'm hearing when my son talks to me. Or he only talks to me nicely when he wants something. One woman said he talks so much that it's hard to get a word in edgewise. Or I feel like one woman said I spend all my time breaking up arguments. Or, sadly, one woman said, yes, he asked for my forgiveness, but I'm having a hard time letting go of the hurt. What he said was so cruel. Another said, I wish our family could go through an entire day without someone yelling. Or a man said, she always has to have the last word. Or, He talks sweetly to me when we're in public, only in public. Another said, I think it would be better if we just quit talking altogether. I mean, words, the words that come out of our mouth. And it's not just us. I mean, you could go back into the biblical heroes. They struggled to control their tongue, did they not? I mean, you just think, you don't even have to turn there. Isaiah 6.5. When he's in the temple and it starts to shake and the glory of God appears and he said, woe is me, I am ruined. In other words, I am undone, he says. I am unraveling at the seams, he said, because I am a man of unclean, what? Lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Doesn't that strike you that when he's in the presence of God and the temple is shaking and God's presence is there, that he feels chiefly aware of his sin, of his lips, and the, and the sin of the people. I think it's interesting that in Isaiah, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, this burning coal. You just you kind of see him pitching, picking it up, and he touched my mouth, and with it he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. He sinned, did he not? And he's in the presence. He's recognizing that, and I'm thinking Isaiah is the most righteous man in the whole nation. And he feels chiefly aware of the sin of his lips. I'm thinking of Moses. You remember the account in Numbers 20 when when God said, go speak 
to the people, right? And speak to the rock. But it says this commentary on it in Psalm 106. They angered him, did the people, Moses, at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. And because he spoke rashly with his lips, he never got to enter into the what? The promised land. Because of that sin. That instead of, you know, you know addressing that to the rock, he, he kind of cracked the rock and he spoke rashly with his lips and the Lord never let him enter into the promised land. So Isaiah struggled with it. Moses struggled with it. Job struggled with it. You remember at the conclusion of Job when he said after God finally appeared and said, where were you when I did this? And where were you when I created the world? And where were you when I caused the waters to team up? And where were you when, you know, and he goes on to that story. And finally, Job speaks in 40 after all of his words. He said, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? This always strikes me. He said in Job 40 verse 4, I lay my hand on my what? Mouth. And then at the end of the time, he just said, I talk too much, God. I talk too much in trial. In fact, that's where it shows greatly. I lay my hand on my mouth. Who of us could forget Peter? I mean, this is a guy that boasted, even though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. But you know the account that night, Peter sinned with his tongue and denied the Lord how many times? Three times. I mean, the tongue get us in a world of problems, can it? I'm just thinking of the Apostle Paul. You don't have to turn there. When he was describing in his masterpiece, Romans, which I can't wait to do with you one day, because I want Strider to know Romans. I want you to know Romans. We'll, we'll do that one day. But remember in, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's showing that we're condemned just by the fact that he's the creator. Then the Jews condemned and the, the Gentiles condemned. And all the world is under sin. But he describes what under sin and under condemnation and depravity looks like. And he says this in Romans 3. The, their throat is an open grave. And with their tongues they keep on deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Romans 3. It's it's amazing that Paul lists the five different organs of the body that are the most common vehicles of sin. The throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, and the feet. What I find amazing is four of them relate to speech. Interesting. I mean, needless to say, the control of the tongue is a must for our church. It's a must for your home. And it is a mark of genuine salvation. So that's what James is all about. And as you look at chapter 3, you remember where we find ourselves. He's giving a series of tests. Let's bring those up. And we've looked at those series of tests to test the validity of our faith. It's tested in trials, what we do with it, and even our speech and what we do with that. It's tested in temptation. Do we blame God? No wonder the scripture said, let everyone be quick to hear and slow to what? 
speak. It's tested in our obedience to God's word. In fact, if you want to look down, look back at James chapter 1, he outlined the book for us in 126, and he said, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This person's religion is what? Worthless. And so now he's coming back to that theme. And then we talked about partiality. And then we talked the last weeks together that our faith is tested in relationship to works. And now as we come into the argument in chapter 3, 1 through 12, faith is tested. It might say a little different on your bulletin, but it's tested in relationship to our words. I mean, I, I think you can see that having just dealt with face relationship to works, James now deals with face relationship to words. Because if we really put it into practice, it's going to make a difference with what we do with that little red rebel. And so he addressed that in James 1.26. And he challenges you, me, okay, to see that our speech is to be consistent with the faith that we profess. And in order to see this argument this week and maybe a couple weeks that follow, he provides four truths in order to control our tongue, okay? Four truths in order to control our tongue. We'll hit a couple of those even today. But let's look first at the importance of a controlled tongue. The importance of a controlled tongue. Look down at the Scripture. Interestingly, he says, not many of you, should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So he addresses this issue of the teacher. The teacher. Now, to to be a teacher in the early church was a privileged position. It was both privileged in the nation of Israel, but it was privileged just with the people of God. I mean, it is a... It is a place of honor. And I would say that it is my privilege to teach the Word of God here, to teach His Scripture. And with this privilege comes a great temptation. So as he enters into this chapter, that's an interesting way he says it. Not many of you should become teachers. In fact, when you begin to study into the text and the history and the context of it, Barclay added a, I thought, a helpful point. He said that the Christian teacher entered into a perilous heritage. In the church, he took the place of a rabbi in Judaism. And there were many great and saintly rabbis, but the rabbi was treated, Barclay said, in a way that was liable to ruin the character of any man. His very name means, this is what rabbi means, my great one, end of quotes. And everywhere he went, he was treated with the utmost respect. It was actually held, listen to this, that a man's duty to the rabbi exceeded his duty to his parents because his parents only brought him into this, in, into life of this world, but his teacher brought him into the life of the world to come. And it was actually said that if a man's parents and a man's teacher were both captured by an enemy, the rabbi must be ransomed first. 
That's kind of a harsh reality. Hey, get the rabbi before you take my parents, you know? Amazing. It was true, obviously, that a rabbi, they said, was not allowed to take money for teaching, but it was also held that he was, if he was especially pious and meritorious in his work, to take the rabbi into the household and to support him with every care. And it was easy for a rabbi to become the kind of person whom Jesus depicted. And this is what Barclay said, a spiritual tyrant, an ostentatious ornament of piety, a lover of the highest place in almost a subservient or a lover of the highest place at any function, a person who gloried in the almost subservient respect showed to him in public, end of quote. I mean, I've met some people like that. They actually think they're God's gift to the church. And before James launches to address us in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. He says, hey, hey, just for a second here, just, just a note of caution here. I'm just thinking of Jesus' words, indicting. I think it's Matthew 23, where he was talking, do you remember, about the scribes and the Pharisees. He said they sit, he said, on Moses' seat, kind of the place of authority. And then it says, so and do, it says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Jesus said, for they preach but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the people's shoulders. But they themselves, Jesus said, are not willing to move them with, move them with their finger. They do all their deeds, Jesus said, in order to be seen by others. For they make, it says, their phylacteries broad and their their fringe long. In other words, they used to wear those robes and it was a sign of piety how long that phylactery was that you would either put on your forehead or on your left arm. And then they did all these things so that they would be seen by people. And then Jesus said in Matthew 23, they loved the place of honor at banquets. They loved the chief seats in the synagogues. They loved the respectful greetings in the marketplace. They loved being called by men rabbi. So so James just opens up and he gives a note of caution here. He begins, if you will, to work from the top down. And his advice is profound but simple. Not many of you should become teachers. Because the teacher, you understand, has the potential to abuse the tongue rather easily. Now that word there, if you look down in the scripture again at 3.1, not many of you, the word many reveals the gravity of the situation in the early church as well as today. It's not saying don't pursue the office. I mean, if Don came up here and asked for teachers, that's a good thing. Because some of you men need to get out and make your faith real and even maybe even need to learn how to teach. That's fine. But let there not be, James Caution, a rush to this. I mean, it is a frightening reality of the teacher's role that is given by our Lord. And when I set my eyes on Strider, and I think of all of our young children that the elder team has care of, I'm thinking about the words of the Lord when he said to some, whoever causes 
one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, in the truest way, he's not talking about a child there. He's talking about a new believer. And he says, woe to those who teach, in essence, who teach error, who cause these people of mine to stumble. It would be better for that guy to have some millstone around his neck and be drowned into the deepest part of the sea than to mislead one of my children. It's a heavy responsibility. And some people ask me, do I get nervous when I come up? No, not really. Part of that is a gift, but I'll tell you, I'm not preaching to you. God's examining my life, right? I don't ever want to stand before God and have to give an account for a a sloppy ministry and a sloppy word from God. So in the truest way, I'm always thinking, what does the text say? And can I get to the people the text? I mean, I'm thinking of what Paul told the Jewish people in Romans 2 when he said, if you bear the name... Jew, and rely upon the law, speaking to the Jewish people, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are essential, be instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. Then he says this, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you not steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul said there out of the scripture in Romans 2, you who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, Do you dishonor God? And he told the Jewish leaders there, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And there it wasn't so much based on content as it was based on hypocrisy in their character. And so here in the early church, teachers were being thrust forward to the office. And what James does is he just gives a word of caution here. That's all. A word of concern that this title would be sought with sobriety, be sought with discernment. It's not a, he's not discouraging a teacher. If you men have that on your heart, then you will have to teach. I mean, for me, I just, I feel like woe is me if I don't preach. So you might not feel it that strong, but if I don't preach, I'm disobedient. I mean, it's just that simple. So I'm kind of stuck with it. You know what I mean? It's like I I see this responsibility, but it's my calling. It's like Jeremiah says, if I stop speaking, then it becomes fire in my bones. So James isn't saying, don't let any of you become teachers. He said, just let there not be a rush to become a teacher. Okay, That's the thought. I'm looking back. I see my wife back there thinking of my ordination when, I don't know why he didn't say it when, when I was there, but he had me go out of the room so all the elders can talk, and my wife was there. And I remember John MacArthur looking at my wife and saying, Scott will have a hard life. And, you know, I have great joy with you, but I would tell you it's not easy. 
You say, well, what makes it hard? Well, first of all, you've got to live what you preach, right? That, that's, that's hard enough, right? You've got to be consistent with what you say out of your mouth. But then just to get the text right is also hard. And to stand before the Lord and have people say, hey, that's too much. I mean, you have to know I've talked to people in the last month who have left our church. Say so they have? Yeah, it's not even something I said. It's something that another teacher said from Grace Community. They know that I'm tied there, and they think this is just too, too much. So you're here, and I'm here, but listen, that's okay. I'm not, you know, it's not like a bitter thing if they left, because I'm going to have to stand before the Lord. And we are, as an elder team, as we give direction. And so James just says a little caution here to where you're moving. I mean, you begin to read the other scriptures, the other epistles. It's a terrifying judgment pronounced upon false teachers in passages like Second Peter and the book of Jude. So why Benny Hinn misleads hundreds of thousands of people, he will stand before the Lord, won't he? It's quite a frightening thing. I think of the Jude is spoken to the false teachers. I mean, maybe the heart attitude needs to be that of John Knox, who was the leader of the Reformation, who was so overwhelmed by the seriousness of teaching God's word that when he was asked to publicly take on the office and charge of preaching, he burst into tears, withdrew from the assembly, and did not appear again for days until he felt prepared. You say, well, why is there such caution here? Look down in the text. Here's the reason why. It's the importance of the tongue. You see it there in three one. It says, my brothers, for you know, here's the purpose clause, that we who teach, James includes himself, will be judged with greater, what? Strictness. You can see it. That's why it's, a, it's such a holy task. Greater strictness. I'm thinking about that account when... Um, this it's not in my notes, but it just came into my mind. Swindoll used to, I don't know if I've told you this, way back when he was preaching in Fullerton, used to write in the flyleaf of his Bible all the names of the men that he knew who were personally in ministry who fell to immorality. And by the time I heard him preach that message, he had listed 48 guys who preached one thing and then somehow were put out of the ministry because of a lack of purity in their own life. So James just says, let not many of you become teachers. You know why? You are going to incur a stricter judgment because what you say must be borne out in how you live. In fact, look what it says there again in three one. For you know that we who teach, and then this phrase, will be judged. Will be. Future tense. He's looking to the time of teachers. And listen, I don't I don't think it's just pastors. I think there's a formal calling here. I also think there's an informal calling to those of you who stand before people and give the word of God out. He's talking about will be judged, and he's looking to that time when teachers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, whether unsaved or saved. And, and it's not just teachers. All of you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of you. You say, well, Scott, I thought there's no condemnation. Sure, no condemnation, Romans 8.1. But there is a Bema seat judgment addressed in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where you were given account for your labor. So if you're just sitting back here 
And you're saying, well, gosh, I'm hearing Scott preach, and I heard Don give that announcement, and I don't want to be a teacher because what if I I get something wrong and and we want to train you? But listen, you may stand before the Lord, and he may just say, hey, why'd you bury the talent that I gave you? If I gave you two talents, how come you didn't go out and multiply and make two more? Or if I gave you 10, how come you didn't make, make 20? Remember the, unfool, the foolish servant where he came back? He said, at least you should have given it to the bank and I would have got interest when I came back. So all of us are going to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's what this looks for. But here, the test, at least of teachers and all ministry will come in the day of examination before God. That is why Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.16 to Timothy when he said, pay close attention to yourself and to your what? Teaching. You watch your life, maybe in that order, and then you watch your teaching. He said, pay close attention to yourself. He says, persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure both salvation for yourself, not ultimate salvation, your deliverance for yourself and for those who hear you. So there's a judgment. We'll stand before God. I think of Jesus when he said in 1236, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Matthew 1236. Wow. Paul was aware of this. You say, where's that future judgment? Let me just show you. Look over in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. He he mentions this, and certainly a teacher is going to face this. He says in, excuse me, it's not, yeah, 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 10. And and I've addressed this before to you. He says there, He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Why? For, purpose clause, 5, 10, we must, not just teachers, we must all, all of us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one shall receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Okay? And so we're going to appear before the Lord, all of us. And how much more, at least... In this context, a teacher. The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. The greater the knowledge, the greater the indictment to live what you know to be true. Barclay, again, believes that the teacher struggles all of his life to avoid two pitfalls. I thought it was helpful. First, he must have every care that he is teaching the truth and not his own opinion or even his own prejudices. That's, that's true. He said, it is fatally easy for a teacher to distort the truth and to teach not God's version, but his own. Secondly, he said he must every care, he must take every care that he does not contradict his life by his teaching. He said he must never get into the position, interesting, where his students and his scholars cannot hear what he says for listening to to what he is. End of quote. Well said. Watch your doctrine. Watch your life. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine. I mean, who could forget the words of our Lord for every teacher, everyone who has been given much, much will be what? Required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. And again, you go back into the context of the rabbis, some of these teachers could almost become like little popes running around. 
And if you disagree with the little pope, and maybe you've sat under one of them, okay, you're branded as unfaithful and unspiritual. So, you know, you know some people, they go to the other extreme. They take such a, as though they're speaking the word of God, and if you disagree with them, then, then you get pushed off into a legalistic way because you just didn't agree with him. I mean, I just, I shudder to think I will stand before God and give an account of God to you. So you can bet I, I'm going to, in my own ability, try to get it as right and live as holy as I know I can. So here, it's not wrong to desire the office, but never forget the responsibility is to glorify God and exalt his word. So not only is the tongue, number one, of importance, but secondly, would you note the impact of a controlled tongue? Now look back. Here's the impact of it. He, he moves off from there, and I say that he moves off. Some think he's addressing the teacher all the way through. He says, look at verse 2. Here's the, the impact of the controlled tongue. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. Here's the impact. He says, we all, not just teachers, right? Fair. All of us as believers. I mean, there are some who believe, as I mentioned, this is for all teachers, the whole section. I don't. It's possibly true, but certainly his word, the words of the Lord there, for we all stumble. He's, He's talking to all of us. In other words, we all stumble Sin is a universal experience that affects us daily. I'm thinking of Paul's words, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you remember when we were studying 1 John, it says, if anyone says he has no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We just, we all stumble. It says in Ecclesiastes, there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Especially do we stumble with the tongue though, right? A hasty word, an untruthful statement, damaging gossip, hideous slander. I mean, so important is the tongue. Look again at the scripture. It says there that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a what? It says that he's a, a perfect man. Now you say, what, what does that mean? If, I mean, it could be, I don't think so, but I, it could be at least logically that he's saying if you don't stumble in your words, then you're a perfect man, and therefore nobody's really, what, perfect, because we all stumble. It could be, I, I, but I, I think what James is after, when he uses that word there, look again at 3.2, he's a perfect man. That's the Greek word teleos. We've seen it before in chapter 1. It just means that he's mature. It does not mean here that the individual is sinless, Perfect just simply means attain to the goal of spiritual maturity, attain to the goal of adulthood. Now, of course, full perfection, full maturity can only be sustained and attained in the life to come. But here, that perfect man, say it again, that mature man who controls his tongue, that mature woman who controls his tongue, look back at the text, what it says. It said, it says, if the... If he is a perfect man, if we don't stumble in what we say, he is a mature man, or we could say he's a mature woman, able also to bridle his whole, what? Body. So this is the point of James. And it, and it just, it almost just comes off, it, it, you think he should say something more, but listen, to control the tongue is to control the whole person. 
James is saying here that the tongue is the master control of our entire life. The tongue, as we know, is the revealer of the heart. The tongue, if you will, is the tattletale of what's going on in the heart. And the use of your tongue and my tongue is the measure of your spiritual maturity or your lack of it. When the tongue is under control, your entire life is under control. Now, to press home this truth, he brings us to five illustrations that depict the power of the tongue. So let me just take you to one of them, maybe. Look thirdly at the illustrations of the tongue. You, you see these before. Look at verse 3. If you put into the mouths of horses, if you put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, obviously, this is a reference to the part of the bridle that is put into the horse's mouth called the bit. Yeah, we get that. You, you put this bridle on, right? You put the reins on, the, you know, you, the, the ropes there, and you pull that metal bit, and that metal bit is in their mouth on their, what? On their tongue. It's on the horse's mouth. And so James is just saying practically, if you control the horse's tongue, you control the what? The horse. In fact, look down at the scripture again in verse 3. It says, if you put into the mouths of horses, the bits into the mouths of horses, so that they obey us, hear this, we guide their entire body as well. To control the tongue is to control the horse. I mean, certainly I would think most of you have ridden a horse. I mean, it's amazing considering the size of the horse that is controlled by a very small bit, right? I mean, you've got these massive horses with great power, but with bit and bridle in the mouth, it can be made to dance. Sometimes, you know, I would say, you know, even before my dad got saved, before any of us got saved, he used to take me to this racetrack. It's no longer there, Santa Anita. And he would just take me to watch the thoroughbreds. I was a little kid. And I'd go watch those. Man, those things were huge. Maybe as a little kid, I'm just, they're just massive. And then that little tiny jockey gets on the horse. And somehow that horse, though it's massive and it weighs, is controlled by the jockey pulling on the reins with the bridle, however you say that, with the bit in his mouth. And you can control the entire horse with the bit. The principle here is this, that your tongue, when brought under control, here's what James is saying controls your entire what body and the true test of a man's spirituality the true test of a woman's spirituality is not one's ability to speak as we are apt to think it is rather as Kent Hughes said one's ability to bridle their tongue And so he uses the illustration of the horse and the bit with what is small to control the whole body. Obviously, he's making an analogy. You've got a two-ounce slab of mucous membrane. If you can control that, you can control your entire body. 
Now, some of you are going to say, yeah, but Scott, come on, get to the point. It, you know, the, the heart is, is really the issue. The tongue is the external issue. Man speaks forth out of his what? Heart. We think that, but I'll, I'll unpack this more. I don't think the Hebrew mind thought that way. I, the, the Hebrew mind would agree with that. But the Hebrew mind, according to Paul in Romans 3, would get down to the feet, would get down to the head, would get down to the tongue, would get back to the poison of asp is on their lips. Why? Because the vehicle was external, but the Hebrew mind made no difference between what was in the heart and what came out because what came out was an expression of who you are. But he says here, if you can control that tongue, you control the whole body. Look finally at verse 4. He said, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, you get it, they are guided by a very small, what, rudder, wherever the will of the pilot desires. You've got a ship, it's massive, it's being blown by winds, if you will, and it's driven by a very small rudder. James is just saying, so also is the tongue. I've been on one of those cruise ships before. Have you ever been on one of those? I went on one with a um, Christian ministry. And, I mean, it's a floating little city. I mean, it's in the water. It's just like there's 2,000 people on this thing, you know. It's a floating city on the water. It's massive. It's got a bottom deck. It's got a bottom floor. It's got a middle floor. It's got the upper deck. And then there's pools and stuff. You know how that you've seen that or you've been on one of those. And then if you walked up to the captain's deck, you just there's a little dude up there going like this, spinning that wheel and actually turning in proportion to the ship a very small rudder. James is making that point to us. You control that little red rebel inside those two rows of soldiers called white teeth, you're going to control your body. I mean, but this is what's so hard, right? For you history buffs on May 21st, 1941, the unsinkable, German battleship, the Bismarck, was sighted in the North Atlantic, and and they saw it, and immediately planes and ships from the Royal British Navy sped to the scene. And as the Bismarck was heading toward the German-controlled French coast where it would be safe from the attack, you can just see it's approaching this. All of a sudden, to the astonishment of all, this massive battleship, as quick as it could, uh, suddenly swung around and re-entered into the area where the British ships were massed in greatest strength. And at the same time, it re-entered into the area of their enemy. It began to steer an erratic zigzag course, which made it much easier for the British to overtake her. And what happened to the Bismarck was that a torpedo had damaged the what? The rudder. And without the control of the rudder, the unsinkable Bismarck was sunk. See? As a small rudder controls a ship, so a small tongue controls a person. How you doing? How am I doing? How we doing? I mean, you, let me just give you a few thoughts as we close here, okay? Okay, there's hope this morning. If you're in Christ, a few quick reminders. I'm preaching to myself too. Number one, slow down. Slow down maybe. My beloved brothers, back to James 1.19, let everybody be quick to hear, slow to what? Speak slow to anger. Slow down. I mean, we, we think people can get over our angry words. A lady once tried to justify the quickness of her own tongue by saying it passes. It is done with quickly. 
to which the famous evangelist Billy Sunday said, so does a shotgun blast, right? Such is the result of a quick tongue which leaves devastation in its wake. Listen to Proverbs 15.1. You know this one. A gentle answer turns away, what? Wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. So number one, I would say to us, slow down. Think, Think about the tongue. One said, It can tear down churches. It can destroy relationships. It can wreck a marriage. It can devastate a family. It could rip up a nation. It can lead to murder. It can lead to war. On the other hand, it could build up. It could create love. It could create enthusiasm, comfort, peace, joy. All of it is in the power of the tongue. One, slow down. Two, would you just bite down? Maybe just bite down for the sake of this illustration. I'm thinking of Psalm 39.1. I will guard my ways that I will not sin with my tongue. And then it says in 39.1 of Psalm, I will guard my mouth as with a, a muzzle. I mean, maybe if we're having a tough time with it, maybe we ought to just put one of those muzzles on. I don't know. That, that would help us. So slow down, bite down. And maybe just thirdly, can I just say to you, look up, look up. And, and what I mean here is look back to Christ. He's our example, isn't he? He says, does Peter, in 1 Peter 2, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And what's the example? That he committed no, no sin, nor what, nor, it says, neither was deceit found in his mouth that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten. That's a good verse, isn't it? But continued entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. May we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and praise God that he was fully perfect, right? That we don't enter into heaven based on our own righteousness, but his. But he becomes our example that we ought to model.